everyone, welcome to ILTV Zion News on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up in today's newscast, it looks like U.S. President Donald Trump will not be moving the American embassy to Jerusalem for the time being. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas is now admitting that Trump gave him a verbal smackdown and will reveal which country is banning the Wonder Woman movie all because of its star Israeli. I'm Natasha Kirchuk here with the latest news in Israel. U.S. President Donald Trump isn't quite living up to his campaign promises. White House sources are now saying that just like former President Barack Obama, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton, Trump has signed a waiver to block the U.S. Embassy from being moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. During the 2016 presidential race, Trump, like his predecessors, was promising to uphold Congress's 1995 vote to move the U.S. Embassy to the Israeli capital as soon as possible. But now he's set to follow the status quo and use presidential waivers to overrule the Jerusalem Embassy Act. We're hearing there have been arguments within the White House between the people pushing for the move and the military and oil men who oppose it. In favor are U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley and U.S. Ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, but Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, Defense Secretary James Mattis, and National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster are pushing back against it. Well, it seems like Trump is listening. McMaster caused controversy last month when he refused to admit that the Western Wall is under Israeli sovereignty. We've been hearing reports for a while now that Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas's meeting with U.S. President Donald Trump was a tense one. Well, now we can finally confirm those reports. Abbas apparently said their Bethlehem meeting was uncomfortable during an executive meeting of the PLO, and that's according to a London-based Arab news site who spoke to senior Palestinian sources. Israel's Channel 2 News had previously reported that Trump had given Abbas a tongue lashing for not only inciting to violence, but for also lying to the American leader's face about it. Trump accused Abbas of telling tales in their Washington meeting earlier this May. The Palestinian sources say that the Palestinian leader admitted that Trump had scolded him and even forced him to watch a video of Abbas saying, quote, we incite and the Israelis incite. Abbas has reportedly ordered Trump to get the CIA to analyze a film clip and claims that it was fabricated. In September of 2015, Abbas accused Israelis of desecrating Al-Aqsa Mosque with their filthy feet, sparking over a year of terror incidents known as the Stab Intifada. Joining us now in the studio to talk about Jerusalem and the Israeli-Palestinian peace deal is a former Deputy Foreign Minister and Ambassador to the United States, Dani Ayalon. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Natasha. All right, Ambassador, let's start out with the biggest story of the day. The U.S. Embassy moved to Jerusalem, which is not going to happen now. Are you surprised that the White House you know, upheld the status quo that we've seen happen? I'm not surprised. I'm disappointed, but not surprised. I think most Israelis are uh, disappointed, including, of course, the government of uh, Israel. But um, I think that uh, it was expected on two, on two accounts, uh, or for two reasons. First and foremost, Trump really is uh, trying to move the Palestinian-Israeli uh, negotiation forward. He tries to jumpstart the entire political process. And he understands that in order to do that, he cannot just take a, uh, a step which the Palestinians uh, will you know, absolutely object, the Arab countries, which he also brings, wants to bring in. So they would also push the Palestinians into the table and into concessions. It just seems like everybody was so convinced that he was actually going to hold this promise, right? And now that it's not happening, is there really any hope left for an embassy move? 
Well, I would say that this is a, a wait-and-see game. I believe that uh, Trump will um, wait to see whether the Palestinians are stepping up to the table. Are they being flexible and making concessions? If they will do that, if, if they will be uh, very forthcoming in the process, I believe this, the embassy will wait. But if he will see no chance of moving forward, I think then there is nothing to lose, and then he will do it. Well, you know, the other the other side to this is that many were pushing for this embassy move, but it did seem like there were some Israeli officials who were not necessarily in support of it and were worried about the implications they could have on the future of peace talks between not only the Israelis and the Palestinians, but just really Israel's place in the region as a whole. Would it be a positive move for this to happen right now, for the embassy to be moved? At the end of the day, Natasha, yes, because I think Jerusalem goes down to the core of the Jewish identity. I think it transcends politics, and uh, it's not just symbolic, it's not just uh, strategic, it's much more than that. And there is no good time or bad time, and I believe once you do it, uh, everybody will accept. It's like in 1980, everybody was pouncing on Menachem Begin uh, at the time where he annexed, or, or when he um, officially reunited Jerusalem. And everybody said, Every, the sky is going to fall. Nothing happened. The, the, the Arabs always threaten. And I think the, the, the downside here is that once Trump promised, and then the Palestinians and the Arabs threatening not to do it, this is yielding to threats, which can be a slippery slope and reflect badly on the United States and its deterrence. Now, what about these reports that Trump yelled at uh, the Palestinian President Abbas? Do you, can we give any credence to this? Do you think that this actually happened? I mean, Abbas did admit it, but it seems a it's, little outrageous. No? I, I would say I'm not surprised that uh, Abbas admitted because it really plays to his interest to show his people that he was really tough, that he is not willing to, to, uh, to compromise to the extent that Trump had to yell at him. Whether it happened or not, it's, it's anecdotal. It's, it, it has no right. significance. Well, I guess it, it depends on which way you choose to look at this story and which way you, uh, team, you want to interpret it. But I guess in that, say, I mean, in your opinion, the fallout is not going to be a great one. No. No. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining no. us, Ambassador Danny Ayalon. All right. A young IDF soldier was lately wounded this morning after a female Palestinian assailant stabbed him in the upper body. ILTV's Aaron Porras has more on the story. Aaron, fill us in on some of the details. Well, the soldier, who is about 20 years old, is reportedly in lightly wounded condition, where and he's receiving treatment now in a northern hospital. Uh, the terrorist in question is a woman who was originally described as someone in her 20s, last reported in critical condition. Palestinian media is saying she was a teenager, but the truth is that there's very little evidence about her. Uh, and, but, you know, thankfully the incident is over and well, everybody... Let's check out your report. The wounded soldier was guarding the gate of the Mevodotan settlement in the northern West Bank when the attack occurred. The terrorist reportedly ignored orders to halt, managing to stab the soldier in question. Other soldiers at the scene responded by shooting and wounding the Palestinian attacker. The terrorist received first aid at the scene but was last reported as critically injured. Her current condition is not yet clear and the soldier was taken to Hillel Yafe Hospital in Khadera for treatment by the Magendavita Dome paramedics. Despite the drop in frequency, roughly 50 people uh, in Israel, including an American, a Briton, uh, and even an Eritrean, have all been killed in violence that has, uh, that has upticked since, uh, since October 2015. If you include the AFP's number of Palestinians who were killed in, while performing the attacks, that number skyrockets to 300. Well, you know, our, our prayers and uh, well wishes are with those yeah. uh, victims and the, the families of the victims. Yeah. 
All right, honor killings, they're all too common across the Middle East. When a teenage girl oversteps the bounds of her restrictive society, her male relatives often take it upon themselves to restore family honor in the first degree. Now, hundreds of Israeli Arabs are standing up in protest of this epidemic. After two Israeli Bedouin women died in suspected honor killings, Israeli Arabs held a large demonstration in the Negev this Tuesday to protest what they're calling a conspiracy of silence. When Bara al-Shurbaji of Rahat disappeared, it was two weeks before police arrested her relatives. They suspected that her brother Mahmoud had burned her to death and another brother had covered up the murder. But the brothers were released from jail after a few days. Now, police investigators are saying that al-Shurbaji committed suicide or died at home in an accident. The protesters aren't buying it. One of the organizers says it was clear to us from the beginning when a woman disappears that she's been murdered. The protesters are saying that the police and local social welfare authorities habitually ignore the killings, seeing them as an internal problem of the Arab community. Two local Knesset members were among those leading the demonstration. Honor killings are only part of the problem. In 2016, over 700 women took refuge in shelters for victims of domestic violence. These numbers are only rising, and police inaction can often drive women back to their abusers. Now, the Israeli president is taking action by personally intervening in a homicide case on behalf of one abused woman. In 2002, Dalal Daoud was sentenced to life in prison for the 1997 murder of her husband. Daoud was being beaten and raped by her husband for years, even when she was pregnant, yet most of the six complaints she'd filed with the police were closed for lack of public interest. On Monday, President Ulven Rivlin ordered the parole board to move Daoud's parole hearing up by six months, and he's pushing for her release. His office put out a statement saying the evidence shows a harsh picture of a woman who for many years was a victim of serious and ongoing violence from her partner. Rivlin has chosen not to pardon Daoud because she will get she will need to get help reintegrating into society when she's freed through the parole board. It looks like not everyone in the Middle East will be able to enjoy Gal Gadot's action-packed performance in Wonder Woman. Lebanese authorities have banned the film just hours before it was set to premiere in Beirut. Lebanon has a decades-old boycott of Israeli products and Lebanese citizens are forbidden from traveling to Israel or even interacting with Israelis. Apparently watching a movie that stars an Israeli actress is illegal too. Theaters across Lebanon are working to take down posters and promotional materials for the blockbuster film. With a 94% fresh rating on popular movie review site Rotten Tomatoes, it sounds like they'll be missing out. Leaders of the Israeli boycott movement in Lebanon are hoping that the pressure of losing Lebanon's potential audience of some 5 million people will make Warner Brothers reconsider their casting choices. And the Justice League movie might fare no better if activists have anything to say about it. أن يمنع هذا الفيلم الجديد من العرض في الصلاة اللبنانية والعربية من دون حتى كل هذه الـ يعني الـ الاضطرابات التي حصلت ولكن لا أعلم ماذا جرى المهم الحمد لله الفيلم منع ونحن نتعهد بمنع أي أفلام أو بالعمل على منع أي أفلام مماثلة Not everyone is on the same page as the Lebanese government. 
Ellie Ferris, a well-known Lebanese blogger, is speaking out and says the ban would have made more sense if it had been done a year ago when the movie's first trailer was released. After all, she says, what's next, banning every single movie that dares to be associated in any way with Israel? It's estimated that nearly 400 million people suffer from some form of diabetes worldwide, half of which are undiagnosed. Well, if you're one of these people, then keep watching because joining me in the studio now to discuss a revolutionary diabetes treatment is Professor Eduardo Mitrani, the Betalin Therapeutics Chief Scientist. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on your name there. All right, so this is very exciting. You have created a new treatment. How does it work? Well, it's, we're developing a radically different concept. Rather than using a mechanical device or trying to apply cells, which a lot of groups are trying to do, we're trying to create a whole organ, a whole pancreatic organ that will produce the insulin to be implanted into patients. Wow, so this does not sound like an easy thing to do. How does this process work? How have you been developing this? And what was the thought process behind it? How did you come up with the idea? Well, I'm at, uh, I started as an engineer and then I moved into biology. And uh, for many years I've been observing how we're built. And we're not built of cells. We're built of more complex organisms, which are organs. And uh, it, as a developmental biologist, for many years we've been studying how cells interact with each other to form a more complex organization, which is an organ. And this is where the idea came from. Amazing. Now, how, I mean, <laughs> my question is, how is this different from current treatments? I mean, I think it's a little bit obvious, but can you kind of just explain to us what exists right now in the market? Yes. Uh, perhaps I, f I have to start saying that this is for extreme, at the moment it's for extreme cases of diabetes, right. where people type 1 diabetes in mm -hmm. particular, and very extreme cases of type 2. Type 1 is the type of diabetes that you don't produce insulin and you really need to be injecting it all the time. So rather than doing that, there is a lot of efforts trying uh, an alternative, which is to actually implant the actual cells that produce insulin. The problem is not producing the insulin. The problem is regulating the amount of right. insulin that you need as a response to the amount of glucose that is in your blood. So is this treatment available yet? I'm assuming it's still in the process of, of being created, correct? Yes, this is in the process of being created. We have done a lot of work at the Hebrew University where I am a professor. Wow. And now there is this company, Betalin, who is trying to move it to the clinic. We are now in negotiations with the regulatory agencies in the United States, hopefully to start... Uh, so what's the timeline? When can time? we expect this to be available? Unfortunately, I don't like to give false expectations, and this is a long process. Right. I mean, the clinical process, the regulatory process is something that might take several years. Well, yes. I mean, you know, it's clear that there are so many people in the world right now who are looking for an alternative to the treatments that exist right now, and it seems like you're creating something that is really going to be able to change a lot of people's lives. So I hope that it gets out onto the market sooner than later, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. By the way, just so our audience knows, Betalin Therapeutics was just awarded first prize for the best pharma company in Israel at the prestigious Biomed Congress held in Tel Aviv last week. All right, 50 years ago, Israel won the Six-Day War, unifying Jerusalem and taking control of the West Bank. And recently declassified government archives are now shedding light on some of the fateful decisions that the government made five decades ago. 
The archives reveal a divided Israeli security cabinet. While IDF chief of staff Yitzhak Rabin was saying one would have to be stupid to not realize that Egyptian President Gamal Abdul Nasser was planning a war, cabinet members like Moshe Chaim Shapira were calling for restraint and cool heads. The ambassador to the United States was pushing U.S. President Lyndon Johnson to give Israel a green light to preemptively strike Egypt. The green light never came, but unpredictable events in the war made the cabinet debates largely irrelevant. Israel destroyed the Egyptian Air Force on the first day of the war, possibly preventing a Soviet-backed strike on the Dimona nuclear reactor. And IDF forces took Jerusalem and the disputed territories before the cabinet was even fully aware of their capture. To some NGOs, the roots of Israeli policy in the region can be found in these archives. Policies that were envisioned very early on, 1967, 1968, uh, serve government policies to this day. Uh, interestingly, because of this uh, passage of time, we actually have access to these archival documents uh, that are now open, some of them, a minority of them really, but still some of them are open for us uh, to look and, and to draw our conclusions of uh, how our government has been uh, functioning uh, in this conflict for the past 50 years or so. The six-day war actually never ended. The seventh day has lasted ever since for the last 50 years, and it is affecting both us and the Palestinians on an everyday uh, basis, every, every day, every minute. While to Israel the threat of invasion from Egypt and Syria was the main concern, some see the main importance of the war in its transformation of relations between Israel and the Palestinians. I think it's correct to regard the Six-Day War as another round in a very, very long war between Israelis and Palestinians, starting even earlier than 1948, actually starting in 1917, uh, if you want. And um, it's a very, very difficult conflict that probably doesn't have a solution. So the question has always been how to manage it. And the argument between us and the Palestinians, and the argument amongst ourselves, is really about managing the conflict more than solving it. If you're interested in taking a look for yourself, you can find the archives in Hebrew at www.archives.gov.il. The 50th anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem is fast approaching, and as we remember the past, we must also consider what lies ahead for the holy city. LTV reporter Gabrielle Weininger sat down with the executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations, Malcolm Hanline, to find out. Jerusalem, it's 50 years of the reunification of the city. What's so significant about this milestone, and what kind of challenges lay ahead? I think it's very important and it's been very exciting here this week, far more than I anticipated. And in part, it's a reaction to the UNESCO and UN obsession about Jerusalem, denying the 3,800 years of Jewish history and 2,000 years of Christian history, taking away the Judeo-Christian names from these sites and, and making that official UN doctrine. And the answer is to reassert the claim to Jerusalem, to tell the truth about Jerusalem, its sacredness to all people. but. You, you see all the discoveries that are taking place every single day, every shovel in the ground uncovers something that brings the biblical account to truth, to, to see that they can be verified and validated, and that these horrific charges, and they are serious, because throughout history, the, the effort to diminish the Jews was summarized in three letters, hep, hep, from the Romans to the Nazis, Jerusalem et Perdita, the Jews was lost, because that was a declaration that the Jews had no future. Jerusalem united back in Jewish hands is a declaration of the Jewish past and the Jewish future. 
Do you really think the city is united? There are accusations on, on from the many Palestinians who say there is a socio-economic disparity for East Jerusalem residents. Do you really believe it's a unified city and it's treated the same way in each side? I believe that there are complaints from people on all sides and that's only natural. I hope that uh, as the mayor has committed and translated that commitment into deeds to raise the educational and, and other standards, I hope that there will be investment in all sectors to bring Haredim and Arabs and everybody into the full economy. And, and, but there has to be a willingness on their part as well and a commitment to being good citizens or uh, residents and to participate in this society. So I believe that the city is more united than people believe. Unity is not homogeneity. Unity means a common vision for the future for your children and your grandchildren to see a city, a real uh, golden city that all can aspire to, that protects the religious freedoms of all. I think that is possible. Do you think the future of the city of Jerusalem looks maybe a little bit grim, given that you have 7,000 people who left just this year, and you have growing populations of, for example, the Orthodox community and the Arab community? There are many challenges ahead for Jerusalem. Absolutely, and we have to all be committed to assuring the future, the security, the viability, the attractiveness of the city, getting people to work, bringing more high-tech business here, other businesses to Jerusalem, and their diaspora jury can help, and the world Jewish community, uh, non-Jews as well, coming here, investing here, so you make it more attractive uh, to young people. It's the most inspiring place in the world. I mean, Tel Aviv is nice, but you can't compare it to the inspiration of Jerusalem. Thank you so much for joining us You're very welcome. ILTV. Around 7 million people in Ethiopia are suffering from malnutrition, and now an Israeli nonprofit is on a mission to change that all by improving agricultural techniques. The average Ethiopian farmer's income is only a dollar and a half a day. At the best of times, food is hard to come by, and when pests and diseases mess up the crops, it means famine. Fair Planet is working to make high-quality vegetable seeds suitable to local conditions and, most importantly, affordable to local farmers. Dr. Shoshan Haran, the founder of Fair Planet, worked for an Israeli seed company for years before realizing that the best way to help poor farmers in developing countries is to give them access to quality seeds. Over 100 Israeli Fair Planet volunteers have been working to help 15,000 farmers improve their crop yields. The NGO begins work in a country by testing different varieties of seeds for the local soil, they then train the farmers on model farms, teaching them how to use the seeds and agricultural techniques. The whole idea is to empower farmers to make improvements to their yields rather than to just give them aid. The Israeli organization has been around for five years and is now planning to expand to other African countries, including Tanzania and Uganda. All right, you won't believe what people uncovered during the expansion of an Israeli highway near Jerusalem. Well, ILTV's Max Keisler has the scoop. There's a lot of history in Israel. Construction workers building parking lots and contractors renovating basements routinely come across archaeological artifacts that are thousands of years old. Before the expansion of Highway 38 near Ramat Beit Shemesh, the Israeli Antiquities Authority took the precaution of digging in the area, and they've uncovered an Ottoman-era well and irrigation system. The large underground cistern designed to hold overflow is the first of its kind to be found in the Judean region. Route 38 lies on a historic route between northern and southern Israel, and the leader of the excavation believes there are more wells waiting to be found. He says that the wells were constructed for the public interest, to serve travelers on the road and residents of the area. The artery has been the site of prosperous villages, farms, and monasteries for centuries.
The Hebrew Word of the Day is brought to you by IDC Samru'ul Pan, open to everyone. And now for our Hebrew Word of the Day. They say peace is a natural effect of trade, so today's word is sachal, meaning trade. Sachal, which can also refer to business, commerce, or traffic, is understandably used all the time in everyday life. From sachal, you get mischal, meaning a specific trade, which originally referred to a direct transfer of goods and services. In today's market, sachal refers more widely to any trade in the marketplace. For example, the sachal basamim, or the drug trade. Now, while that kind of trade isn't necessarily a good thing, trade is important in keeping cultures and peoples in contact, ideas and innovation free-flowing, and in general, for the health of any growing economy. Let's just say no nation was ever ruined by trade. All right, let's go ahead and take a look at the weather forecast. Tonight, you can expect the skies to be partly cloudy with a low of 67 or 19 degrees Celsius. Over the weekend, the clouds are set to clear and the temperatures are set to rise as the heat is expected to settle around 83 or 28 degrees Celsius. All right, that's it for today's news. Today's exchange rate is 3.55 shekels to the American dollar. Remember to sign up for our daily newsletter at ILTV.TV. I'm Natasha Kirchuk and thanks for watching.